This is The Guardian. You know, when I'm mentoring writers or working with writers or teaching, you know, I would always say, if it's cathartic, write it by all means, but don't publish it. Come back to it 10 years later when it's no longer cathartic, when you have had the catharsis. The catharsis should be for the reader, you know, not me in the writing. Hello, I'm Lucy Clark, Features Editor at Guardian Australia, and this is Book It In, the podcast where we have conversations with top authors about the ideas that shape their work. In this episode, I'm talking with Catherine Heyman. Catherine is an award-winning novelist, essayist, scriptwriter, and also a mentor to many other writers. And earlier this year, after six novels, she published her first memoir. It's titled Fury, a memoir of courage and determination of fighting back and finding joy. It charts a year in her early 20s when she experienced a series of traumas culminating in a devastating sexual assault trial, after which she ran away from her life in Sydney and became a deckhand on a fishing trawler in the Timor Sea. Here, in the crucible of life-threatening storms and back-breaking physical work, she was transformed. In this episode of Book It In, I wanted to talk to Catherine about this transformation, about male violence, justice, yes, fury, and the idea of catharsis, and how the passage of time and the getting of wisdom lends itself to literary realisation. Before we start the conversation, a warning there is discussion of sexual assault in this episode. It's a difficult listen at times, but stay with us. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Here's Catherine Heyman opening with an excerpt from her memoir, Fury. I thought when I began writing this book that it was just the story of how the ocean saved me so unexpectedly, a story of how I was made new. But then I have to ask this, why does a girl get on a boat with four men, strangers all, and head out to a horizon she has never seen? And to answer that, I have to ask this, why does a girl stick her finger out on a long highway, stretching from one end of the largest island on earth to the other and get into strangers' cars, hoping for the best? And to answer that, I have to ask this, why does a girl stand on a road at night, looking into the car with two older boys smirking at her and choose to get in that car? Why do men, young men and old men, weave to the side of the road, 
lean out the window, their mouths dry with promise, and tell young girls what they think they need, trusting that fear will give them a free pass. Why might a girl say yes when she wants to say no? On the ocean thief, on slow days, we coiled rope. I loved the heaviness of the cord, the way my arms felt the weight of the weave, the way I had to flick and turn to make the rope lie flat. Lining the coils neatly on the upper deck, it gave me a strange pleasure. Making order, I see now, it's a pleasure that has come to distinguish many corners of my life. Uncoiling the why, the how of the girl I was, the dangers I stumbled into and the dangers I went looking for is a mixed pleasure. Each length of rope leads to a new one, knotted and tangled, wet with the slime of the ocean's hidden murk. The dangers I stumbled into and the dangers I went looking for. Catherine, this line in particular seems so pertinent to your memoir. There's a lot of danger and there is a lot of leaning into danger. Indeed, you open your book with two very different types of danger. In the first pages, there's an utterly terrifying, cinematically dangerous episode on a fishing trawler at night in a storm in the middle of the Timor Sea. Can you set the scene? This storm was in the midst, to put it in a slightly wider context, it was in the midst of a, the worst fishing season. Uh, this was in the Bonaparte Gulf, the worst season that the Gulf had seen. We were actually out of season. A storm had blown up. We were an incompetent crew and I was particularly incompetent. And in the middle of this storm, the nets were dragging under. We couldn't pull the, the nets, huge fishing nets, on this small fishing trawler, uh, six-berth trawler being really thrown about and so these huge nets full of fish we couldn't pull them up and we came to understand that that was because the heavy boards that hold the nets down had broken so the only way to get the nets up was to fix the boards in order to do that we had to effectively hang from these trawling booms that stretch on either side of this small fishing vessel hang from them into this roiling sea um so as i stood on this thin metal boom stretching out into this sea yeah i, I was i was sure i would die it, it it was the most physically terrifying moment up till that point of of my life mm. directly after that you go into what is actually a masterstroke of juxtaposition because there's another dangerous scene it's a party in Sydney, beautiful people, cheap wine, so seemingly banal. This is a different scene to set. Can you tell us what happens? So thank you for saying those lovely words. So this was the moment that began in story terms, in narrative terms, this party was what we would call the inciting incident. This was the moment that propelled me into the journey that would apparently culminate with me out there on that trawling boom, terrified, the journey that would lead me into making a life that was a better life than the one I was in. And as you say, it was a party with beautiful people, much more beautiful than me, um, largely drama students. And I'd come with a friend and I felt 
very on the outer and I drank a lot of wine and then I drank some more wine. My friend and I had brought some wine to share. We shared that. Someone else had more wine. It was a lot of wine and there was some Benedictine. And at some point I realised I'm quite drunk and I need to go now. My friend wasn't ready to leave the party and so I left the party and although I was very drunk, in the way that 20-year-olds can be, I, I thought I understand enough to know I need to get a taxi. Small amount of money in my pocket. And, you know, this was in the days when hailing taxis mm-hmm. was a thing. Remember that? Mm-hmm. So I hailed a taxi. Expensive decision too for a, I mean, you were financially strapped as well, right? Mm-hmm. So, but you chose to do what you thought would keep you safe. That's exactly right, exactly right. And you're quite right in saying it's, of course, a structural decision, it's a writerly decision, but it was also a life um, clarity to me that these different kinds of danger, that the the physical danger that I was in on that boat was in many ways uh, less of a danger than I had been in in those situations, in those times when I should have been safe getting into a taxi, I should have been safe Mm. and I was not safe. I obviously don't want to go into the details of what happened. Um, The difficulty of talking about those things must, you know, must still be with you. Um, You write about them, but that night you're uh, assaulted and you're picked up by another taxi driver who convinces you that you need to go to the police to report. Did Mm. you feel coerced? No, I mean, actually, when I think about, so so that's right, the taxi driver, the first taxi driver, you know, I think one way to put it might be that he, he saw, you know, in Australia, we used to get in the front seat of taxis. Yeah. Yes. And uh, so I was in the front seat of a taxi and, you know, a sort of not quite passed out, but, you know, kind of flopping around in the front seat. I think the taxi driver thought, okay, well, this is an opportunity and took it. Mm. So... He pulled off the road and I managed to um, lurch myself, I suppose, out of this sort of very drunken state and scrabble my way out of that taxi. And then, indeed, it was the next car I saw, the the car that I flagged down, was by, I guess, coincidence, a taxi driver. And it was him who said to me, he he actually, we, we drove around and he got the number of the taxi that I had originally been in. So, you know, he was, um, the fact that I was able to go to court was really because of this taxi driver, this second one. I didn't feel coerced. I think he felt that he was genuinely helping me. What he said was, I wanted to go home. I just wanted to go home. He said, we need to take you to the police. Mm. We need to make sure that this man is not doing this again. Mm. And that began uh, another kind of brutalising process in a way, didn't it? Because at the police station you say, you, you know, you've, you've just been through this trauma and you're standing at the desk and you write, in the same way that I was raped seems like the wrong sentence focusing on the wrong person. It seems to me that the horse-faced sergeant is asking the wrong questions. What do you mean by that? Well, both phrases are about the 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 centering of active participant in rape and sexual assault. And, of course, what was happening at that time, and actually it still does happen, 
was that the police were interviewing me as though I was the person who had something to prove. I was the person who had to demonstrate my innocence. Mm. And it seems to me that even in that sentence, you know, I was raped, the, the, in terms of sentence structure, <laughs> yes, yes. The, the active person is me and it is a problem with the way we speak about sexual assault. It still is, isn't it? It still is, absolutely. Mm. So that experience in the police station was all of the cliches that you might expect, all of the the horrible cliches of how police speak to uh, people who have been through a sexual assault. Um, the language, the judgment. He's <laughs> what the, in in a line of dialogue which really forever is seared in my mind. When I first went in, he said, "Well, I don't know about what you're saying, but I know that you've been drinking." <laughs> you know bravo buddy that's great excellent observation there and what follows after that is the court case a a similarly uh dispiriting upsetting anger inducing experience in which you feel completely unsupported and as you say no resources there for you Mm. as a victim would it be the same today do you think um Okay, well, a couple of thoughts on that. First of all, in in the book, I do deliberately um, come back a little later to the the court case for a few reasons, Um, and and one is to do with that, that connection of danger and safety. I want to say it's very different now and it's not different enough. I think what is changing is the conversation around sexual assault. So it is changing, but it's not different enough. Mm. And we've seen that recently. We've seen that with recent cases. We know that to be be the case. Yes, sadly, it's uh, a book that will always be timely. I know there was some discussion around the timeliness of the release of your book and um, really uh, any year it could be a very timely release. So, Catherine, your book is studded with episodes that act as a kind of stairway to this rising fury. One step, men call out on the street. Another step, there are old neighbours who assault little girls. Another step, teenage boys picking up a girl in a car and taking her somewhere unexpected. Men who expose themselves, men who rape. And another step, a whole system that makes you feel shame and guilt feels like a very familiar pathway to a lot of women and it seems so exhausting sometimes to keep climbing. Do you think it's getting better? Well, um, what, what, if, what I wanted to do with that kind of litany, if you like, was on one hand to demonstrate the litany of small and large indignities that women grow up with. Mm. I don't think that's particularly changed. I wanted that to be set alongside the sort of um, the determination to 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 find physical courage and to to, you know, to harness the power of of fury and imagination to to come out from under that to to stare that down. So. 
I think that, that one of the things that is different is the conversation that we have. I think that, that women speak to each other. So you start to put that litany together. You start to join up the small cell pieces, you know, in that, that kind of image that I have in my mind of how a butterfly is made from a caterpillar completely mm. misunderstanding the science, but, you know, that idea that <laughs> random, and I don't even know if this is true, apocryphally, um, that random cells, you know, disconnect, they don't, they don't join up right next to each other. They, they, you know, one cell at the top, another cell at the bottom, and then eventually they just all join up. So I kind of think that process has been happening over the last um, generation or so in terms mm. of women and that conversation we have. So that was one of the reasons I wanted to, throughout the book, lay out that litany, that that, uh, that image of here is another moment, here is another moment. Mm. We put these together and what we have is a culture which impacts on women and which which gives young men uh which impacts on young men as well. It impacts mm. on, on both, let's be honest. You mentioned just before you wanted to find that courage and physical courage. Um, to me, one of the most dramatic moments in the book is at, you're, at, you're 15, you catch a ride with um, some older boys. They know one of your, I think your brother, um, but they take you the wrong way out of the suburbs, off the road and into the scrub. And you make what to me is an absolutely extraordinary decision for a 15-year-old, which is to roll out of a moving car to run away from them. That is a supernatural kind of courage um, and very physical. Where did that come from? Well, you say it's an extraordinary decision. It seemed like the only decision <laughs> that I could make in that mm. moment. So... I mean, it, that's really interesting to hear you say that, Lizzie, because when I set foot on, on that fishing trawler, the ocean thief, my feeling was that I had no physical strength. I had no physical capacity and I had no physical courage. That was the sort of story I told to myself. And to be honest, it was a story I continued to myself to tell to myself after I got off that boat for many, many years. I told myself the story that before the ocean thief, I was a different person. And mm. after I was the person that you now know. Right. But I learned those things, or I learned how to harness those things on that on that trawler during that that wild season that that's what taught me courage and that's what taught me the capacity to make things from nothing. So it's interesting when you oh. say that because actually, yeah, of course, as I've been talking about fury and, yeah, I have I have sort of gone back and, and I noticed that, oh, okay, yeah, some of that capacity was perhaps was there, there already. Yeah. Um, but it, I didn't feel myself to be physically brave at all in that moment. I was angry, so again, I think the sort of um, the harnessing power of well, I use the word fury very deliberately in that context mm. because fury is very sharp and focused. It's not wild and and out of control in the way that that you know rage is. So I think I was feeling, but not quite able to articulate to myself, not feeling as a 15-year-old girl that I was allowed to articulate, mm. I am furious. 
But that energy became a um, that was the thing that perhaps gave me the the capacity. And also, it was a sort of blind instinct. I am not going to be in a situation where I am um, I, where I'm where they are the people in control of what happens to me. Mm, mm. I guess we only hear the stories or we often hear the stories of of uh, girls who don't, you know, roll out of a moving car to escape that situation. Um, it is, to, well, to me it was, a, it was an extraordinary act of physical courage. You talk about fury, um, which is obviously the title of the book, but it's also something you were called as a small child, which to me is another example of um, physical courage actually biting other children <laughs> if that's that's one way to put it <laughs> yeah well it's it is it is what that is that is what the situation was um yeah as a very little child so I guess I was in kindergarten and uh, I would get the bus my parents had divorced and so we had moved my my mother and um the the children who were still at home had moved to a a, a rented house uh away from from the house that we'd been in before then. So I would get the bus from, from my school with all these older kids who would tease me. I was I was actually, um, as a child, I had, uh, I was cross-eyed. And I don't, in fact, I don't think I make very much of this at all in the book. I was, cross, I was cross-eyed and I wore calipers when I was very little. Oh, no, that's so, not in the book. No, I thought it was maybe a bit much. I thought, <laughs> We're not writing a misery memoir, Catherine. Right. But um, the calipers were off by then, but I was still, you know, a little cross-eyed kid. They would call me Clarence the cross-eyed lion. I would get teased a lot. Um, and so that became my response. I would run at these kids and bite them with what I still, I can still physically recall the actual pleasure of getting my teeth on them, leaving this little red mark on their, on their skin. I, I, the feeling was pure pleasure because they were always astonished. As I say in the book, I was little. I had little mm. blonde pigtails, you know, tiny and cute in a slightly odd-looking way. So the pleasure of both the physical feeling of biting flesh Weird for a vegetarian. I've been a vegetarian <laughs> since I was eighteen, so you know, it's maybe like, that's what did it. <laughs> maybe um, and leaving the mark and their astonishment. Those three things. So after that, I I got other names. Little Cannibal was one, and the other was Little Fury, which actually came because my father, in that time, um, in that sort of interim period of the divorce, was was staying in the hotel where the bus stop was, and he saw me biting these bigger kids and and angrily um, picked me up and told me off and and said I was a little fury, which I thought was magnificent. Was Absolutely it a compliment? Magnificent thing to be to be called. So it, when when I was later called those things, little fury, little cannibal, I understood that it was not meant to feel good, but it did feel good. Mm. Mm. Speaking of your father, you you wrote for The Guardian, and I know this is an area you've explored a lot in your writing about family violence and your childhood growing up with a violent father. 
um, you know, fury is not the first time that you've explored male violence. Certainly Storm and Grace does that. Um, I wonder how growing up with that violence in the family into which you were born has shaped the family you've made for yourself as an adult. It's really shaped it. It's really shaped it. Yeah, such an interesting question. Um, yeah, and and I, I'm aware of that because my my daughter, who's now a young adult, reported to me a conversation she'd had with one of her cousins, so so a sister's adult child, about the different ways that my sister and I had parented. And, yeah, I think my parenting has been very conscious, very, um, yeah, very conscious. And, mm. and my choosing of my partner was, was very informed by, uh, by the things I'd learned as a young mm. woman. My decision to choose, you know, a good man, you know, that took a lot of training, <laughs> that mm. took a lot of retraining. So yeah, no, I'm. I was very. I've been very conscious of creating a family uh, of of safety and calm, and support and kindness. Mm. There, there have been moments when I, particularly when my kids were younger, when I would <laughs> almost envy them. What you know, the the family that that they have that mm. we made for them, but. Yeah, that, which is a kind of strong word, but that yes. I am conscious of the difference mm. in a way that they cannot be conscious of by definition. They mm. cannot be conscious of. You can't be aware of no. the trauma of what you haven't experienced. You can only learn about it retrospectively and it's distanced. Mm-hmm. How many times did you say you don't know how lucky you are? <laughs> I really tried not to. I really tried not to. And actually part of that for me was until my children were uh, really in quite late high school, I never, I didn't really reveal my family mm-hmm. background mm-hmm. to them. I didn't really reveal much of that. I kept a lot of these things quite hidden, not from shame, but because I wanted them to choose their own relationship, for instance, with my mother. I wanted them to not feel any sense of inherited trauma. That kind of idea of inherited trauma, you know, I think the jury's out on how that's received, but I suspect that a lot of that is through storytelling, through the Mm. stories we receive, not merely, you know, physiological. So I felt that I had control over that. I had control over what stories I gave them about mm. my story. So they were never really aware. And then, yeah, from, from late adolescence, they started to get a little bit more consciousness. And it's kind of become a bit of a running joke now, particularly when I, when I talk about um, class in, mm. with, with my kids and, you know, occasionally I'll sort of say things like, well, as the only person at this table who can really speak on behalf of the working classes and and my kids will say, can you really, Professor Dr. Catherine Heyman, can you actually speak on? <laughs> so, yeah, it's it's now it's that's how we how we manage it. Mm. Have they read the book? No. Right. No. As far as I know, they haven't. Mm. Um mm-hmm. Interestingly, some of my daughter's friends have read the book. <laughs> right. <laughs> I think 
I think that would be strange. Yeah. Too. I would not expect them to. I'm not sure that I would want them to. Um, I think there are ways that you want to know your mother mm. and and ways that you want to know your writer. <laughs> yes. And yes. they're not the same. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. You were just talking about trauma and storytelling and obviously the writing of trauma, well, I, you know, I, I can't know actually, you can tell me the writing of trauma must be difficult. Um, and you, you've said elsewhere that you started writing this book as a novel and I wondered if that was a way in the first instance to, to be distance, distancing yourself from the trauma. Well, look, honestly, I think it was because um, I had always thought that I would write this story, um, certainly the story of me being on the ocean thief, fundamentally because I always knew that it was a cracking story. Mm. You know, I mean, actually at the time I always thought I would be a writer, actually, even, even in that moment that I was leaping from the car at 15 with, with no evidence at all to support this audacious <laughs> expectation so I always thought that I would write about it and I didn't for so long because I couldn't figure out how to make a novel from it because I read novels, I felt myself to be a novelist. Um, so I think that's why I started it as a novel. Mm. My first novel, The Breaking, is very, very autobiographical. Well, the first, the first section of it is and then it kind of bounces off. But um, so I think I kind of had that idea that I would it would be sort of autofiction that I would bounce off it somewhere, and at some point in the writing, I I realised that because actually the events were so narratively um, arced mm. and so dynamic in story terms that I realised I didn't that I would be doing it a disservice. Mm. You mean yeah. the events leading up to ending up on the ocean thief? I mean the events on the ocean thief. Oh, right. So okay. that was always the container of the story. And there was mm. just a moment of going, to make this into fiction is doing the whole thing a disservice. It's, it, it stands as it is, as the, 
you know, I was starting to kind of almost randomly make fictional decisions and and removing the energy and the power of the story. Mm. So it was kind of a writerly decision, actually, the moment of going, you know what, it's it's memoir. Yes, yeah. I think what did help me, though, is that, well, first of all, in the writing of it, as I said, up until that moment, I had always had in my life the story in my own head and the story that I've given to other people who have known me since that time, that there's a threshold. There's, there's, you know, again, in the hero's quest when, you know, there's, there is a threshold, I've always felt that that is a threshold in my life. I was one person before, I was a new person after, you know, like, like a sort of baptism. Well, that meant that, now it turns out that's not completely true. Like all the stories we tell ourselves, it was just a story I told myself mm. to allow me to reinvent. But having that thought in my head meant that in the writing of it, I could have a sort of distance because it, although I was writing actual memoir, it sort of felt like this is another person. This is a different time. I'm not that person in any way anymore. It also helped that, you know, I had a different name then. I wasn't, I was, I have a name that some people in my family still call me, mm. but those names have been kept very, very separate since not long after I got off that boat. So before then, everyone knew me as Casey. Mm. Everyone I went to school with, every, my first um, job as an actor, I was, I signed the contract as Casey. Um, you know, that was my name. Mm. So that was kind of helpful. It gives this separation. And it was a very deliberate remaking of oneself. It really was. And when I did come a little later, a little after I got off the boat, when I came to the decision to return to the name that I had been given at birth and had never, ever used, that was a, honestly, without being too grandiose, it was I made that decision after a three-week silent retreat about a year after this I got off that boat and it felt like a holy decision and it's you know I was aware then as I'm aware now that in religious traditions renaming is a part of the remaking mm. so at that moment I felt like I I have made myself different I have built muscle psychological and physical so I'm no longer that same person. What the writing of, of Fury did do, though, was brought those two things together. So I think actually without being aware of it until that moment, I had had this um, fierce separation, you know, even that thing of not telling my children what what I had, really what I had come from. Mm. Um that separation was, I don't want to say pathological, but it was fierce. Mm. So writing it kind of brought those two things together. It meant that I was able to, to, to go, oh, like even you asking about that moment of me leaping out of the car, to go back to that child biting those men. Mm. So the things that I think I developed later, it's been quite a gift to go, oh, perhaps this sort of context that you feel gave you nothing. Perhaps actually mm. there were gifts in that context. Oh, I can. And, and those people gave you gifts. As yes. Well. 
Oh, I can I can so clearly see it on the page. Is it a kind of resolution? I mean, people talk about catharsis all the time, but this seems more like some sort of resolution. Yeah, absolutely. Within you, yeah. Absolutely. And it's separate from the writing. When people have said to me, was it cathartic writing fury? And I've gone, absolutely not. Mm. And my God, you know, when I'm mentoring writers or working with writers or teaching, you know, I would all, always say, if it's cathartic, you know, write it by all means, but don't publish it. Mm. You know, come back to it 10 years later when it's no longer cathartic, when you have had the catharsis. The catharsis should be for the reader at that point, you know, not me in the writing. So I didn't feel that it was a catharsis writing it. I'd already done the work mm. that the, so that I was already transported in, in, in my own self. But the, the end result, as you say, was a kind of resolution in the sense of the, yeah, like um, a resolve, a bringing the elements together. And interestingly, you asked it whether, whether it was sort of traumatising. I think was, that was the word you used, writing it. And it really wasn't. It actually felt weirdly joyous mm. writing this. Honestly, I loved writing this book more than I have loved writing any book. I loved writing Moments of Storm and Grace. I loved being beneath the ocean and in Captain Starlight's Apprentice. I loved writing The Voice. There's always been bits that I love. I love writing. But Fury, I loved showing up for it. I really found the energy of it. I loved the people on that boat. I loved being with them again. But when I came back to read the audiobook, so I... I read the audiobook mm. because I was, you know, I seemed like the right person to read it. I was also an actor in my young life. And there were two occasions when I had to stop. And one was on the first day and it was reading that scene that we talked about just after the party. Mm. And the second time was on the last day, so over sort of eight days of recording, on the last day, um, which was the the court scene that again you, you mentioned so those two scenes mm. everything else I, I again I, I really enjoyed reading the audiobook I was it was pleasing for me mm. but those two moments I had to stop and have a little a little moment mm. um that that my the lovely audio engineer had no no way of dealing with had no <laughs> idea how to he just kind of you know looked at the floor and sort of waved vaguely in the direction mm. of some tissues in the recording studio and you know I think just hoped that I'd pull myself together which I did um but, but yes that was the moment of thinking this is a lot I wonder the timing of writing fury means that you've got all of those years of writing advice to draw on as well, not only the time to process your own experience but <laughs> this incredible body of work in terms of mentoring. You're very well known for mentoring young writers and, and you know, teaching them, nurturing them. Yes, and old ones too. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, that's right, absolutely. It wasn't just that I had to build the psychological muscle. I needed craft. I needed 30 years of craft skills to, to be able to be really clear about what I was doing on the page, mm. what I was doing craft-wise. Um, I could not have written this, the book I'm working on, or the, the or Fury, without those decades and of, of craft and those the the skills that have come from 
from writing, you know, six novels and mm. I, I I don't know, maybe 12 plays, mm. you know, that, that that builds up a certain, I mean, of course, every book just teaches you how to write that book as the famous adage goes. Yes, yes. You know, and every book is daunting. Again, as I say to anyone I would work with, you know, it, it, you have to be, you have to not know. You have to be in a territory of doubt and unknowing in order to create something that is art. Mm. If you know from the beginning, then then what you're doing is maths. That's not mm-hmm. fair on maths because maths, <laughs> you know. Um, no, so so the unknowing I think is important. The the fear is actually important. But there are those decades of skill yeah. that you've drawn on. Yeah. And, and I have to say they are glaringly obvious on every page of this book. Thank you. So thank you very much, Catherine, for your time today. It's been thank so wonderful so talking much, to you. Thank you Lucy. Thank you. Catherine Heyman is the author of Fury, published by Alan and Umwin. If this episode has brought up anything for you, please speak to someone. You can call the National Sexual Assault Domestic Family Violence Counselling Service on 1800 737 732. That's 1800 Respect. Their website is 1800respect.org.au and they're available 24 hours. This episode was produced by Daniel Simo, Camilla Hannon and Alison Chan. The executive producers are Gabrielle Jackson and Melanie Tate. I'm Lucy Clark. Thanks for listening to Book It In. We'll be back with another new episode next week. Until then, happy reading. Listener.